Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the sharing economy podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 10th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, accompanied as always by my co-host... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're pleased to reintroduce great friend of the show, Erin Fouzé-Brown, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. Erin teaches administrative law, health law, financing and delivery, and a healthcare transactional and regulatory practicum. Her areas of research and expertise, including healthcare prices, healthcare markets, and healthcare competition and regulation. Welcome back, Erin. It's great to be here. Hi, Nick. Hi, Frank. And hi, Twill. All right, so Twill's topic today, uh, uh, involving some of Aaron's great work, surrounds costs and prices. I guess I, I always approach this with my students as saying that essentially cost or healthcare costs are a, a price times volume. And I, I guess the conventional wisdom in our healthcare reforms, at least, has been that we have primarily a volume problem, a volume problem with a variety of overlapping causes. And, you know, you can choose from fragmentation of care, the fee-for-service payment model, waste, fraud, and countless other explanations for uh, what we call overutilization. So can you bring us up to date on sort of this uh, kind of model, Erin, and, and how pricing fits in here in a bit more detail? Sure. Yes. So absolutely. Um, healthcare cost control really is a function, as you said, of price times volume. And one way I break this down is just using an analogy of going to the grocery store. So if you were to go to the grocery store, such as, say, Whole Foods or an expensive grocery store, you could control the um, total bill by buying fewer items, or that's constraining your utilization. Um, but you might still end up paying a lot because the individual prices for your five or six items are really high. And so that the same is true in healthcare. So you really can't just pay attention to the volume of services or the utilization or the intensity of the service, but also their price. And the reason I think, as you've pointed out, we tend to get policymakers tend to get swept up into this notion that it really is all about controlling utilization and volume is that I think for a long time, the data we had was based on Medicare. And Medicare is a system in which the prices are more or less controlled by the government. So you really are left with a volume problem in Medicare. The problem is, is that's not the same um, problem in the private market where prices pay, a, you know, create a lot more of the variability and the high, the high cost or the high spend spending in the private market is driven so much more by prices and not just by volume. Uh, so I think the problem is because we've always looked at Medicare as sort of our data set, we think we, we've defined the problem as a utilization problem. Um, but now that we broaden our view to the entire healthcare system, um, it, you know, it really is the price is stupid. And that's not me calling you stupid. That's just Gerard, An Gerard Anderson's, um, you know, oft repeated refrain that this is a, you know, we have to control prices to control costs. So the Affordable Care Act, that word affordable was tossed at least somewhat to control costs. I suppose running counter a little bit to what you just said, the, the increase in Medicare uh, as a proportion of our spending mix, presumably one would have hoped that uh, the volume issue aside, that would have had some cost or some pricing control. And then 
Obviously, there are models built into the ACA structure, such as affordable care organizations and uh, sort of general encouragement, I think, that we've seen of vertically integrated models that encourage utilization management. But I think some of your uh, new work, particularly with Jamie King, sort of both challenges some of those premises and also uh, raises the, the problem of some perverse incentives. That's right. And so I think one of the big hopes of the Affordable Care Act is that the Affordable Care Act was going to make healthcare more affordable in the private market through competition, the creation of exchanges and, you know, opening the market, you know, creating some some transparency in terms of what products and, and that you could buy and creating this new market. So that was definitely the competition side of the affordability piece. The other side is what you just mentioned, this host of pilot projects and payment reforms, uh, really spearheaded by Medicare to try to get a handle on the way Medicare inefficiency and Medicare costs overruns tended to have, you know, come about again through a utilization focused model. And so we have the, you know, the creation of the accountable care organizations. I think we now have over 700 ACOs across the country, and half of them are private ACOs. They're not Medicare ACOs. And so we had ACOs and other types of innovations like bundled payments and a value-based purchasing that was supposed to revolutionize the way um, not only care is paid for, but also the way care is provided to make it more efficient, to reward, you know, coordination of care, and to get both physicians and hospitals and other types of providers to work together to provide sort of just the right amount of care, not too much care, not overly intense care, not duplicative or wasteful care. And that was a lot of hope was pinned on ACOs as 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 a cost containment mechanism. Well, of course, now we're a few years into the ACO experiment. And what we're seeing is that, you know, of course, the early data on ACOs is kind of mixed. You know, they're not all successfully containing costs. Um, Many of them are struggling to generate the savings that they, um, you know, or that they basically promise to or that they hope to achieve. Uh, Some of the quality measures are a little bit better. But still, again, we're not seeing sort of widespread, you know, all of a sudden you align the incentives and, and everything falls into place. I think it's hard to build an ACO. However, the whole market is stampeding in the direction direction of forming these uh, integrated organizations, uh, primarily because of the incentives created by the Affordable Care Act, but also just that that's just the way the market was already moving. So we see a ton of vertical integration, which is often integration between hospitals and physician groups, and, you know, trying to create these ACOs and other types of integrated delivery systems that can better assume financial risk, population health and all of the sort of good things that we want the ACA to um, cause change in the healthcare industry, but also there's a downside. And the downside risk is that all of this sort of effort to knit together the fragmented parts of the healthcare system is creating consolidation, more consolidation than we even saw before the ACA, which was already, you know, quite a bit of consolidation, but now we're seeing even more consolidation. Um, horizontal consolidation between hospitals, we know about the insurance industry consolidation, and then all of this vertical integration and consolidation between uh, different types of providers. And that consolidation is leading inevitably to higher healthcare prices. And so some emerging data is coming out that this consolidation, as opposed to saving money, is making everything more expensive. Uh, hospital prices are going up, physician prices go up, outpatient expenses go up. So basically, we're seeing that this consolidation is leading to market power and higher prices and not savings. I just want to play a bit of devil's advocate. Um, based actually on a uh, 
TEDx presentation I was watching yesterday by Jonathan Bush of Athena Health. And in the presentation, um, Jonathan Bush was sort of characterizing the EHR system of Partners Health in Boston, which has often been bashed as, you know, the leading edge of overcharging um, under, uh, which was exposed thanks to uh, some of the information demanded by the state of Massachusetts when it adopted Romney Care back in 2006. Um, and under Jonathan Bush's characterization, essentially, the delivery system of partners was using um, proprietary uh, closed health record systems to lock out other people and to sort of consolidate dominance in its markets. Now, one of the things I've thought, you know, just um, perhaps raffishly or mischievously, was one of the problems that a lot of folks have about our current healthcare system is that there's not enough investment in IT. And if we look really carefully at the amount of the subsidies uh, that were decreed back in 2009 under meaningful use legislation, um, that they aren't enough to support a real digital transformation of the healthcare system. So do you think there's a way in which the AHA, say, hospital CEOs, others might come back and say, look, if we want to have precision medicine, if we want 21st century medicine, we got to pay for it. And the way we're paying for it is essentially by we consolidate firms. This could happen anywhere in the uh, economy of consolidated firms demanding more of the pie. And in return, you're going to get a great vertically integrated system that's going to provide higher quality care. Yeah, and I think, you know, in some ways what you're saying is is true. And that's one of the conundra of this effort to revolutionize and reform the healthcare system is that I think there really isn't much disagreement that vertically integrated or more integrated healthcare delivery is good for people, that it's good for patients and it's good for um, overall health if, you know, physicians can talk to each other and healthcare systems can share in in data and records and that, you know, information basically permits better care to be coordinated across, you know, the spectrum of encounters that a patient may have. So I think that's absolutely right. And so one of the things that you pointed out is a really point well taken, and that is that this transformation is expensive. And it's expensive, and it's not going to be a one-time investment um, just to get, you know, an EHR system up and running uh, in a particular hospital and in physician's offices, but it really is sort of a big investment, and it's a, a big change over time to develop protocols, data management. There's a huge amount of data that's being generated by these ACOs and other sort of reporting mechanisms to try to measure quality and to measure, you know, progress and outcomes and price. And all of this data generation also creates, you know, of course, the need to, to process this information um, in a way that is useful and not sort of anti-competitive or counterproductive. And so I think I think that's right. I think there's a lot of investment that needs to happen. And maybe that's one of the reasons the the pioneer ACOs have struggled to generate the savings is that there's a lot of upfront investment in making this transformation. It's not just a matter of flipping the switch and talking to each other, but really um, there is so much expense required. The other side of the echoes that I thought was really interesting, and I I really appreciate that perspective in terms of the initial investment, because I wasn't thinking in that direction, but I think that's exactly right. Um, on the flip side, the other worry that I had heard was that um, I saw a presentation that was at one of the health affairs briefings from a couple years ago where one presenter said, how much of a discount on, say, um, a frozen dinner does it take to change your behavior at the supermarket? You know, and it's, people would say, oh, 50 cents, a dollar, a dollar 50 coupon or something out of the $5 frozen dinner. And then he said, how much is at risk of physicians pay in any of these ACOs at the maximum level? You know, how much either at risk or how much could they gain um, uh, on the other side? And 
I think at the time the percentages were very low, at least definitely in the single digits, maybe 1%. And so the presenter essentially said, you know, as a physician, are you really going to change your patterns of, of uh, practice or prescribing or anything based on um, these sort of incentives? Now, I guess one could say that the ACO incentives are only part of an ensemble of efforts to change physician behavior and make them more cost conscious. But I still thought that was a very powerful way of illustrating how incentives that we may say in the abstract must work in a certain direction may be overwhelmed uh, actually in practice. I think that's right. And I think, you know, the point that you were making about, you know, how much does a physician's personal incentives change by joining an ACO? I think you're right. Very little. They're still paid in sort of the old fashioned way, even though, of course, um, MACRA changes some of those incentives over time. But for the most part, they're still paid in fee for service. And then they just get a little bonus if they, you know, participate in an ACO. And then, of course, most ACOs aren't accepting, quote unquote, downside risk. So they're not fully capitated. They're not at risk if they spend too much money and they only sort of see a small bonus if they if they manage to eke out some savings from you know improved efficiency and I think you're right that the other um, the sort of industry-wide imperative which is you know get bigger if you want to survive I think that is a much bigger incentive um, for providers at all levels that they're responding to that more than the sort of individual how much am I going to get paid by Medicare you know for this particular service it's more you know what do I need to do to stay alive to manage all of this data reporting requirement? Well, I think it's get big or, or, or get out. And so I think for a lot of the, you know, the business planners and the health administrators, they look at ACOs and all of these shifts as being a, a huge reason um, to get together, to lock in market power, to make sure that they survive into the next sort of phase of the economy. Let me push back on a couple of things that the two of you have been talking about. First of all, are there not some limits to the cost benefits of vertical integration? I seem to remember an interview with maybe the CEO of Kaiser Permanente a couple of years ago, in which clearly they were uh, had made great strides in cutting costs. But still in the overall US healthcare system, they kind of hit a wall at around 10%. So lowering the cost 10%. 10% compared to other uh, providers. And it was unclear how they were going to uh, cut beyond that. The second point that I think was inherent in your comments is sort of this idea of transparency, making health markets uh, work better, um, if not completely curing them. But I was uh, reading a, a report that came out uh, just uh, last week from um, HCCI, the Healthcare Cost Institute, and that noted that 43% of annual healthcare spending is for services in which consumers could shop for based on price. In other words, it wasn't emergency care or something like that. It was where you could actually, where, where as they said, the services were, were shoppable services. But when you actually look at how much uh, consumers pay out of uh, pocket for those services, we were down to about 7% actually being uh, in play. 
So uh, they concluded that for the vast majority of healthcare spending, providing incentives or information to steer consumer behavior will have extremely limited effects on improving the value of the healthcare dollar. Well, yes, and I am completely in agreement with you. So I think that the I was just sort of parroting the policy position on what the promise of ACOs are. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that one, they're entirely limited in their ability to contain costs. And I think relying on them as a cost containment mechanism is, uh, is, is going to be disappointing at the very least. Uh, second, your point about sort of the consumerism, like making healthcare patients into consumers and hoping that that will save our, our healthcare spending is also sort of um, misguided. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that most healthcare, the vast majority of healthcare is not shoppable. Um, for it to be shoppable, it has to, like you said, be not acute, something that there is a pretty standardized service, that there are choices that you could shop amongst, that you could actually get price and quality information so that you could compare apples to apples, and that you somehow have choices in your market or in your network to choose from, and that you can do all of this, you know, as a, a rational consumer. And of course, Carl Schneider and Mark Hall and others have written a lot about how patients are not good consumers. Even the best, you know, best educated patient cannot negotiate on their own behalf, especially from a gurney or for their child or for their mother who's on a gurney or in the emergency room. And that you really, even if you have a shoppable service like an MRI, there are lots of reasons that patients don't shop around and act like consumers, Um, not the least of which is they don't want to off their doctor who's about to take care of them. Um, They want to just rely on their doctor's uh, advice and they want to be good, compliant patients and they want, you know, they can't get the information they need. So using, you know, of course, there's a lot of intuitive appeal to price transparency, um, consumer directed healthcare, of course, a lot more of us have high deductible health plans. Uh, All of that is moving in the direction of patients bearing more of their own cost of care and being more consumeristic. But at the end of the day, patients are very, very limited, empirically speaking, in their ability to make good choices as consumers in the healthcare setting. So with that background, is the fuss about the Gobey decision a little overstated is what most people seem to accept is a sort of ERISA overreaching into data collection. Uh, is, is this really that important uh, when uh, uh, we have such uh, real questions about what good such uh, pricing and other data would do out there? So I think it's actually just the opposite. I think the fuss about Gobey is totally justified. If anything, there should be more fuss um, because that it's not so much much that this data collection through state all-payer claims databases uh, is just for consumer price transparency. I mean, I you know I'm I'm for consumer tri- price transparency, but I don't think it's a real solution uh, to our healthcare problems, our healthcare price problems, our healthcare cost problems. The problem is is that the Gobey decision and this sort of ERISA preemption of state efforts to get this data gets at a different policy lever entirely, and that is states' ability to regulate healthcare markets, to know what's going on, to know whether they have dominant providers that are charging monopoly prices, and then ultimately to, you know, use their oversight as state entities to try to see if they can rein in those costs through, you know, either more stringent antitrust review, um, through certification models, through sort of supervision, through rate, you know, rate reporting, and then maybe even rate regulation, um, as Maryland is doing. I'm wondering, you know, this is a really interesting example of the politics of data, because, 
you know, we, we often think of data as something that you could get by hook or by crook one way or the other. And I think that, you know, this hard ERISA preemption here is a really good example of are not being able to understand some key aspects of the healthcare market. I remember, I mean, just in some of the research that I was doing recently on pharmaceutical research and spending, um, I found and my research assistants found that the most important, best data was in extremely expensive proprietary databases. We just could not get access to them. And the University of Maryland, which is a pretty massive institution, could not get uh, access to them. And so I'm wondering, um, do you think, Aaron, that essentially the Department of Labor could do, could take certain steps here, that HHS could take certain steps here? Are there certain uh, aspects of the regulatory state that could intervene um, so that we wouldn't have to rely on Congress to change ERISA? Or do you think that essentially this is the Supreme Court that has sort of signaled that it has a pretty rigid take on ERISA and efforts to sort of get around it are going to be frowned on? Well, I think you're absolutely right to point out that, you know, that that data is one of those um, aspects that becomes, it's sort of the raw ingredients of policy. I mean, you don't, you can't have, you can't understand, you can't do research, you can't even understand what policies you need to take without the data. And Nick mentioned the um, the HCC, HCCI database earlier. And again, that's a private database that only, that is, you know, three out of the five big insurance companies. That data has been a, a basically like this this amazing private database that we didn't have access to these private prices before. And so that's what's significant. I think you're right about the, the Gobey decision is that we don't have access to this information. It's There's no comprehensive set of information uh, other than through APCD's all-payer claims databases reported to states on private price quality and utilization information that just doesn't exist. And so now that the Gobey decision said you can't get this information, uh, that's a huge problem. And as to whether Department of Labor um, or HHS could do it, I think they could. I don't know if they're uh, if they know how. Uh, that's not data that they currently gather. HHS says, we love this data. We we don't currently get this. It's, we get it from states, if at all. Um, and Department of Labor does not currently collect anything like this data from ERISA plans. They collect data on solvency and finances and things that are completely unrelated to the price and quality of individual medical claims. Um, and so it's not that they couldn't do it through some of their existing statutory authority, um, but it's going to be hard for them to kind of pivot and reach into this huge space of data gathering that they have never operated in before. And so I think the best model would be for them to work both together, HHS and Department of Labor, but also work with the states that have been doing a good job of it so far, um, New Hampshire, work with Colorado, work with Massachusetts, and sort of come up with a standardized data set that all health plans would have to report to their um, to the state so that they can re basically recreate and create these databases that we're so in need of. And I want to throw in one other curveball here, uh, which could be very brief, which is just to note that I will try to put on the show notes uh, some links to material on trade secret protection for prices. Because there's a really interesting line of cases and of uh, efforts by businesses to characterize price lists and as aspects of uh, changes to charge masters or agreed discounts to them as trade secret protection. And then you have to wonder, to the extent that states go after that, 
if they might face a trade secret takings claim, like what we saw in um, uh, O'Reilly versus Philip Morris and uh, the Monsanto FIFRA cases. So it does seem as though in this battle over uh, accessibility to information, um, the sort of spy versus spy uh, maneuvers of attorneys on each side could get uh, quite complex, uh, even beyond the uh, realm of ERISA. One thing that I, I find difficult in this space is the way that we tend to uh, collapse all cost and, and price issues into um, a, a single sort of target. But I wonder whether we should sort of pull things out a little bit more. I mean, uh, are there very different issues with regard to um, hospital or uh, other provider prices compared, for example, to drug or device prices? I think they're related, but they're not entirely the same set of issues. So I think you're right to parse those two uh, types of healthcare prices as having related but different policy solutions and, and problems. So healthcare hospital prices, for example, you know, a lot of that comes down to, you know, providers have market power and really prices are set in the negotiations between the providers, the hospital systems, the physicians, and the health plans on the other side of the bargaining table. And so those prices are, you know, as I've written about in the past and have been documented elsewhere, Stephen Brill and others have just made clear that those prices are, you know, completely opaque. They are set in a way that is, you know, makes almost no sense. I mean, it's driven entirely by things like market power and market leverage. And so they're not related to quality. They're not related to patient mix. They're not related to um, academic medical center, you know, classification. It's really, um, you know, that market is, it has its own baked in set of market failures. Similar market failures pervade the drug pricing problem, but there are then different ones on top of that, right? You have exclusivities from a regulatory standpoint that come from, you know, the FDA's uh, grant of exclusivity. There's the desire to create incentives for innovation and the research and development costs that uh, drug companies and device companies um, invest sometimes without any certainty that they're going to get a return on their investment. And so you have those issues, you have sort of the generic versus the the new innovative drugs that are um, emerging on the market, and all of those have different sets of rules. And then you have different um, Medicare rules regarding those, you know, those um, prices. So one big distinction would be that Medicare does negotiate or set, I guess it doesn't negotiate, it just tells hospitals what they're going to be paid for their services, same with physicians, but that's not the case with drugs. And there's a lot of, of course, political talk of Medicare, of allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Um, but that is by far, you know, just at this point, a political platform and not a reality, because obviously, um, that is not that was specifically avoided by the Affordable Care Act. We're spending $457 billion or 16.7% of our healthcare bill goes on drugs. And I guess the, the ones that uh, that make the headlines are things like the hep C drugs like uh, uh, Havoni, Salvati, and then this uh, leukemia drug, uh, Gleevec, uh, Novartis has, which is, uh, I think, running at $120,000 a year uh, for someone. Now, as you alluded to, uh, I mean, since 2003, right, we've had the non-interference clause prohibiting the secretary from negotiating Part D prices. But there's a new, I guess, a trial balloon almost that uh, CMS have put out over the last few uh, days to try and rein in some of the Part B prices. 
So they've actually changed the formula for payment uh, and reduce the um, the average cost plus six percent down to average cost plus two point five percent for some classes of drugs, with the promise of a second wave coming in twenty seventeen with uh, other kinds of cost controls uh, there. And um, Julie Appleby at um, Kaiser Health has got a great story on this that we'll put in the show notes. So I wonder whether any of those uh, kinds of ideas. Uh, strike either of you as having some some traction. Yeah, I think I think those certainly those ideas have traction insofar as like hospital and other types of prices and costs, there's not going to be one silver bullet to solving the drug pricing issues. And so this is one way to use Medicare payment policy to try to get at some of the perverse incentives that are baked into Part B drugs, the infusion drugs, the drugs that are, you know, that physicians currently have quite a bit of incentive financially to um, prescribe the higher cost, sort of more innovative new drugs than uh, the their cheaper alternatives. Of course, we need the cost effectiveness and comparative effectiveness data to support their comfort with making clinical decisions of, you know, between one or the other. But I think you're absolutely right that this type of move by CMS using Medicare payment policy to kind of uh, correct the perversities in the existing Medicare pricing system, I think is a good place to start. Of course, it's not going to get us all the way there, but I think it is a good place to start. And I guess just to put in my uh, two cents on that issue, I was just reading James Robinson's book, Purchasing Medical Innovation, The Right Technology to the Right Patient at the Right Price. And he mentioned something that, you know, I had read around about, but, you know, to see it just directly characterized on the page, I thought was so helpful in terms of noting that a lot of physician offices and hospitals, when they purchase drugs and devices or imaging equipment, they increase the price by a percentage markup and then bill the insurer for that. Um, you know, to sort of reflect the the ongoing use of the device. And so, of course, that increases the incentive to buy the most expensive thing. And I thought that was such an interesting sort of problem that, you know, just as part of the norms of pricing. And I think, Aaron, you were discussing earlier in the podcast how far we are from, say, a perfect market or any sort of idealized object of the uh, laissez-faire economist's imagination here. There's a lot of room for custom, and there's a lot of room to change custom to better reflect uh, value. So, yeah, I do think those ideas are very interesting, Nick. I was reflecting on um, Beatrix Hoffman's uh, book, Healthcare for Some, uh, Rights and Rationing in the United States. And she basically takes the position that that our model has been a rationing model, but it's one that we triggered by using price. Um, therefore, a large percentage of our citizens couldn't afford healthcare, and and so that's how we performed our rationing. Uh, now, as we move into the Affordable Care Act, and I know we haven't completely solved the problem of the uninsured. But clearly, that idea of rationing by price is not going to be the same model that we've seen before with the increase in insured. Instead, I think it's going to be uh, rationing by underinsurance, uh, as you see cost shifting from narrow networks uh, to higher deductibles, co-pays, and so on. So I, I wondered whether, Aaron, you thought that the proposition that you, you floated out there, that uh, it's not just costs that we're going to have to investigate, but cost effectiveness. I wonder how you see that playing out as a matter of policy and as a matter of politics. Yeah, cost effectiveness and also comparative effectiveness research is, you know, critical to sort of making these 
choices because, of course, we want to extend more coverage and more access to more people. Um, and, and we want, especially in the case of things like wonderful new cures for hepatitis C, of course, we want to be able to extend that to as many people as who need them. But the problem is, in a lot of the cases of the new innovations that are coming out that are driving a lot of the rising costs, is you're right, there's not a lot of good data on whether or not this new this new device, this new drug, or the new technology is really going to be worth it. And so, um, unless we have some way of studying and evaluating and agreeing on the, you know, on the terms of the you know, when things are worth paying for, then I think we end up continuing to sort of have this rationing or backdoor rationing on, on the basis of price. And I don't think that, you know, even though everyone, I think there's a lot of support for comparative effectiveness and cost effectiveness research. You know, I, I think we're still a long way off from getting widespread agreement on how to do that. And then even once we have data on how to say value a quality adjusted life year and, and how to decide what the price of a new technology should be to support, you know, use that is justifiable, frankly. But at the same time, again, a lot of this goes back to gathering data. And we, you know, we just sort of shot ourselves in the foot by not being able to gather even things like all-payer claims data is used for healthcare services research, public health research, comparative effectiveness research. It goes, it all goes back to data. And if we don't have data, then we can't do this important analysis that will move us away from just pure price rationing to a more rational system. So I guess to close out our conversation today, um, we at Twill have avoided talking about the presidential election pretty uh, well <laughs> for a lot of 2016, but we thought it might be interesting just to sort of get some initial impressions of the candidates' health care plans. Um, I might start out by noting that um, Donald Trump's plan has been criticized by none other than uh, Peter Sudeman at uh, Reason Magazine for essentially proposing as new um, something that's already out there, which is uh, HSAs. Although uh, Trump, uh, his his belief apparently is that what we really need out of the HSAs is to end what he calls the death penalty, which is um, his assertion that all the money goes away. You know, at the per that the money needs to sort of go uh, on and sort of accumulate through families through sort of inheritance. Um, so that's an interesting sort of angle. And then there was another interesting angle also on his proposal to allow insurance to be sold across uh, state lines. Um, so that appears to be the Trump. Uh, position on how to oh and that you could save more money uh, to Medicare on negotiating drugs better than is spent on the drugs altogether. So it doesn't look like there's that many good ideas there. The one thing I am wondering though is you know does uh, the Clinton sort of gradualist approach include a sort of bill of particulars about changing the ACA or is it you know sort of more. A, a vaguer incrementalism. Frank, I'll just respond to, you know, your interesting characterization of the of Trump's proposals. And I think aside from sort of the the facts and the numbers not necessarily being all that precise, I think that the idea of, you know, shopping across state lines, which is popular among uh, the Republican platforms, I think, across the board, selling insurance across state lines, again, it goes back to this notion that it assumes that healthcare and even health insurance are ordinary products for which the market works, like buying a car. 
or even buying something expensive like a college degree. And it's just not, it doesn't work that way. Um, One of the reasons it won't work to shop across state lines for your insurance is that your insurance product is really useless to you untethered from the local network of providers that it is uh, covering. So unless, you know, there was some sort of broader network of providers, which, you know, I think is also a lot of consumers would want broader networks, but with broader networks come higher prices. Without sort of addressing the purely local nature of a lot of health plans and healthcare shopping, that it really doesn't do much to really disrupt the market to allow someone to say buy their insurance from a neighboring state or import drugs from Canada. Um, you know, those are sort of things that sound good intuitively, but if you actually were to compare them to the way the markets really work, they they don't actually do much. And on that sobering note. That was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Erin Fuse-Brown for joining us. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at E Brown, E-F-U-S-E-B-R-O-W-N. Great fun having you back with us, Erin. It's great to be here. Thank you both to Nick and, Harry, uh, Nick, and, Nick and Frank for hosting Twill and for allowing me to come on and chat with you. It's like it's Nick and the other Nick. Right. <laughs> and our friend Larry. <laughs> We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? Frank Pasquale at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Well, thanks for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 